Welcome to Behind the Glass, a place where students in an online program can have an experience of sitting and talking with professors and getting all the little things you only get behind the class. Today I have a good friend of mine, James Hawkins, who is um, doing a lot of really interesting work around racial reconciliation as a therapist. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, James. But before we get into that, man, can you tell us how you got into the field of counseling and therapy, like in general? Yeah, I love when you ask that question. Actually, it makes it it makes you take a journey back to it helps orient you, right? So when I think about my journey, I remember first having the idea of being a therapist. Um, I was I was a young guy in the military, and just for some reason, um, the idea of helping people in hard places in their relationship come together, it just always appealed to me. I love watching people. I love learning about people, about why they do what they do, what makes, what motivates us, what moves us. Um, yeah, so that, that's a little bit of that journey. I thought at that time, um, my mentor at the time was a military chaplain who had a very strong counseling presence as a pastor. And I just watched how he was able to walk with people through difficulty. And uh, I was like, that's what I want to do. And so I thought I was going to be a chaplain, Jordan. I was actually going to work and be a military chaplain. And um, but just through the course of the journey, I got into a seminary where I could do like kind of like a chaplaincy divinity degree, but also uh, a licensure in counseling. And I just fell in love with it, man, just walking with people. It was hard. It was challenging. It gets messy. Um, You take some blows in it sometimes. Right. But uh, I don't know why. It's just something. It's nothing else I I could see myself uh, doing. And then it just leads to this place where um, also, I love being in the therapy room and helping people, but also I see in society at large where we're just really broken and struggling about what does it mean to live in this world together, to do, and we can't do difficulty together. That's one thing I see. We really struggle to do difficulty together. Uh, yeah, and so I, I think that's where I see myself and find myself right now as a therapist. Yeah. Yeah, I love that, man. There's so much in there. It reminds me of... um one of my favorite quotes from a, from an old TV show, we either learn to live together or we all die alone. That's know? right. That's right. Um, and I guess the thing that pops out in your story immediately to me is, like, you were almost a chaplain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so many of my students, I would say probably about a third, get into this field because of... Um, a deep love and connection to their church and their church community mm-hmm. and seeing people hurt. But as a counselor, you kind of have, um, you know, this restriction with dual relationships. Mm-hmm. So how come you went away from chaplaincy more toward the counseling side of things? Yeah. And I still find myself in an awkward place where I do live in both worlds and I, and I um, fully embrace that role. Um, I tell you, it fits. So this is how it works for me, Jordan. Um, Sitting with real people in real lifetime struggles uh, and actually being committed to walking with them through it and not to just do no harm, but also ethically obliged to do good, it helps make what I do in a pastoral role more alive and real. Because I'm not talking about issues and things that I see in Scripture. It's like it comes alive to me. I hear real stories. I see real faces. And it moves me with compassion towards people to understand, like, there's good reasons why we all struggle and why we all hurt and why we make funky moves that we make sometimes. Um, so on that role, my room, my, my sit, when I sit in the seat as a therapist with real people and real struggles, 
it I feel like it helps me take a different perspective when I'm thinking about church programs or how we even preach sermons. Like I can get up there and I can preach from a very intellectual, linear type place. And that's great, but how will that land with real people having real struggles? And so I hope that the body of Christ also, so I'm taking a little bit of that systemic thought that I, t- that I have, and I hope the church can help see it, you know, and embrace that and think more holistically rather than just thinking like creating like these experiences where we throw out intellectual ideas or things of that nature. But how does it really get down into the hearts of people to be lived out, not just in their own individual lives, but creating like second order change in society and in culture. Yeah. Wouldn't that be easier to do as a chaplain? You wouldn't have such a separation between those two. I mean, you're obviously talking about how you're able to pull in the therapy side mm-hmm. into the into the uh, ministry side because you're also a minister, right? Yeah, yeah. But it almost seems like if you were a chaplain, those two things would be by default automatically always linked. Yeah, I like what you're saying there. And this is one thing I want to give to, like, even for your students that listen to this, right? I always, I like to give students the gift of knowing that just when you're sitting in this program, that does not mean that everybody will sit in private practice offices, but that I think what we, how we get trained as therapists, our society needs us to sit in so many different seats with the training and expertise that we get. I mean, I would love if some of our, you know, politicians were not just trained in law, but actually knew how to work with people and talk to people and how the messages that you share when you write or when you have the microphone, how they affect the, the uh, people's hearts and minds systemically. And yeah, um, that part. So I do like what you're saying. Like maybe as a chaplain, I could do some of that better. But I just like I feel like maybe. And so I, yeah, because some of the worlds do come together, but just for me, they just, I don't know why they just keep bleeding over. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how did you go from, okay, now I'm going to become a counselor to I'm going to become a doctor. Cause you have, you know, an earned doctorate as they say, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, that, what was that next step for you? Like, yeah. Uh, cause at that time, so here I am still being that person, like that thinks bigger system wise and, um, I just remember there's there's so many things to it, I would say. Uh, I just remember even a professor while I was in my graduate training, and she just, a couple of them, they just believed in me, and they poured into me, and they gifted me, and I could sit back and watch them and see how they were creating, not just in the clients that they saw, but I saw how they were shaping a larger culture because here they were influencing therapists who were going to go out into the field. And I'm like, whoa, going back to how can I maximize the influence or insight or gifts that I've been given. And so part of that going into PhD was one thinking I was going to go into being a, prof- a professor. Uh, but then two, I just felt like I needed more time to sit in a group think process and challenge myself to think more deeply and more critically. So those are the two reasons that really led me to the doctoral role. Yeah. That's a pretty common pattern I've seen or a point in the pattern of success is that people who are successful, they always have some level at which, they have mentors who push them toward a certain path. Yeah. You, you see that, you know, as I've been doing this project, I see that again and again and again. And mentorship is so important because of that. Very. You have people who were invested in you and in your growth. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I mean. So what did you do your dissertation in? My dissertation was actually I did an experimental study where I wrote a, miracle, a marital program called A More Excellent Way. And I wanted to test and determine 
if doing a group study in um, taking Christian couples through a program that explicitly focused on, um, well, I shouldn't say explicitly, but that integrated uh, research from like neuro, uh, neuro, neurofeedback and things of that nature uh, from Daniel Siegel's work and John Gottman's work. That's more that's the, the term. Um, interpersonal neurobiology, but also integrating that with biblical principles uh, from like things like Christian meditation, uh, prayer, but also the power of a group coming together and sharing experience over a course of period of time. How would that impact uh, five aspects of intimacy? And so, yeah, that was uh, my dissertation there. What did you find? I found that that group experience did indeed have a statistically significant impact um, when compared to just a group of couples who were not in a marital enrichment program for the same six weeks. And it had an increase uh, in particularly with the one that was interesting to me was their emotional intimacy. Mm-hmm. That going through this program forced them to stop, make time for their marriage, and talk about things that they maybe probably just with the course of life and being busy didn't focus on. So like things like, you know, what does it mean for us to love each other? You know, uh, what does, how do I walk with you through difficulty? How do we work together as a team? Um, just some of those things and some difficult conversations of how do we handle conflict together? Uh, that just sometimes really was, Jordan, I think the big thing in that, in the intervention that helped with that was the setting aside of a time for a concentrated period of time to have deep conversations. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also, I don't know if you're familiar, but there's a huge body of work that talks about the influence of peers, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, my favorite example of that is Alan Berkowitz's work. He's coming on soon. He talks about social norms, right? Um, but also Judith, Judith Rich Harris, who... She had wrote a book called the, the Nurture Delusion, The Nurture Assumption. Huh. And basically what she says is we think that parents have a huge influence on kids, but really it's their, it's their peer group. Hmm. And she uses a language-based model because kids from who, who, who immigrate, they easily pick up the language of their peers, right? But uh-huh. they may not always speak the language of their parents. Wow. And so she's like, the the influence of peers is so much more than we um, than 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 we really assume and then we really put put weight in. Uh-huh. And so when you're talking about that, I mean, you're having this group of people who are coming together uh-huh. and seeing other people, and then it changes. Okay, yes, I do live in a society. I do live in a small world, a network where we talk about these things. Right? That's right. Which right. can then begin to change the culture of. Exactly. How they have conversations. Exactly. Yeah. Big time. That's awesome. So how come you don't do that now, man? That sounds awesome. Like, we, we need to do that here. I do do that, Jordan. You do? You yeah. still do that? Yeah, man. I just got back from Baton Rouge and New Orleans doing that. Uh, I'll be doing another. That's what you're doing there. Yeah, okay. Yep. I'll have a conference here in the Fayetteville area here soon. So, um, yeah, we still do it, man. That sounds awesome. I need to, I need to like, know about this. I want to come. <laughs> so, Sorry, so Jordan. Much good stuff. We need to hang out more. We really do. We yeah. really do. That's good. Um, so how did you get from that to where you are now and at New Heights yeah. doing racial reconciliation? That's a, a big journey. Yeah, it is. But, you know, it fits together because um, as we go in this conversation, what you'll find is, like, I see a parallel a little bit about particular with how couples deal with attachment injuries, Right. Um, and Ryan Rayner really helped influence me on this, but it's this idea of how couples deal with attachment injuries is, I think I see a similar parallel process. How do we deal with the attachment injuries 
and I'm going to make it a little bit more context specific. But how do we deal with the attachment injury with even, even in the Christian context? And what I feel like particularly, and I'm still trying to research this out, but historically we have not dealt well with the attachment injury of racial oppression um, in Christian, and I'm going to even go for more specific, in evangelical circles. Because in an attachment injury with a couple, I'm sorry is not enough to repair the, the, to repair the trust or the deep level of betrayal or neglect. Uh, it has to go deeper than that for it to be a felt sense of safety and being able to move forward uh, in a surety. Like the, the injured party feels like you really get the level of which how this impacted me. And I can see the pain. I can see my own pain when I look into your eyes, that my pain has entered into your world, even into your very physical body. And that makes me feel safe because you will do whatever it takes, even yourself, to keep this pain from coming back up. And so we're both linked in this process in a very intimate way to prevent bringing pain and separation into our relationship. So that's a little bit how it's the same. And so the journey with New Heights, man, it was something like – just kind of coming out of some experiences I've had in the past where I didn't feel, um, and I'll say, I'll take it on myself, Jordan. Like this is a journey I'm on. I think to exist, I just kind of went quiet on some things that I was seeing and feeling. And within my particular circle, uh, I didn't ask and I didn't take the risk, Jordan, if I'm honest, but I didn't feel like there was a place that if I even shared or began to process, that someone would have been able to sit with me in it, right? Yeah. So in my fear, I remained silent, and I feel like I was a little bit negligent to even take some time to research and to study and to get to something in this world isn't right, but I can't quite put my finger on it, and I don't think it's only linked back to the 1800s and Jim Crow. I feel like some almost like ghost of our past lived today. And so... Um, in that time, I just felt like I needed to get into a different space for many other reasons. There's professional reasons and things of that nature. But then um, God, I just feel like God just sovereignly linked me up with the pastors of New Heights. They kind of share it with where they are, where they want to be, and the tension that they are willing to walk in. Um, and so I got linked up with them and then with the Joshua Center. And, and now I've been on this journey and just been given this license and the support of my community of you're bringing up real questions, James that we don't have the answers to, but we want to get to the bottom of this and we're willing to take the risk. Um, and we won't, we are committed to trying to take a lead and step out there and doing something different in society rather than just apologizing or just moving on. Yeah. So what does that look like as on a practical level here? Are you running workshops? Are you running classes? Are you, yeah, well, holding this, forums in the community. What does that look like? Man, so practically, one level is Jordan is I, I I'm on a deep journey of my own, just in reading. You know, uh, you told me about the book. Like, as a of course, as a, a relationship therapist, right? Uh, the book Bound in Wedlock has been rocking my world. Have you bro. finished that yet? No, it is emotional to oh read, man. To to see that even for slavery, right? So, you know, so I'll say this, right? This is maybe feels country, but I hear so many political pundits and talking heads now. And when they talk, we talk about reconciliation or why there's disproportionate levels of income and crime rates and all of these things. And they'll point to things such as, well, it's because of uh, 
single motherhood or lack of fathers in African-American or minority communities. And I'm like, okay, well, that, you know, that's fine. But like that didn't just happen overnight. There's a reason. But I never hear anyone talk about reasons. Right. So here are, we have to go kind of do like an attachment history, right? right? And when I go back and I read Bound and Wet, like it, like, it just hits me in the face. Can I, I'm going to slow yeah. down because I think people need a little bit of context. Oh, Bound and Wet. Tara Hunter wrote, she's a historian. She wrote a book called Bound and Wedlock, yeah. right? Which is the history of African American marriage, especially through the period of like slavery, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. And that's that's the book that you're talking about that's yes. giving you a context for yes. why we ended up where we are. Bingo. Thank you, Jordan, for setting the context, right? And so just in that, seeing how historically and systemically, I didn't realize we think about voting rights and just even just certain civil rights, but one of the rights that was repeatedly taking away from slave was the right of marriage. Like literally, as a Christian nation, we denied slaves the rights of marriage or in so many ways. Uh, I'm going to slow you down for a second because I love the way that you say that, right? Yeah. Because that word right in a Christian context is, a, yes. is a right. Exactly. Right. It exactly. is a R-I-T-E that is a ceremony that bounds people together. Yes. And it's also a legal right, R-I-G-H-T. Good breakdown. Right. That also says, okay, these are the legal protections you now have in this relationship. That's right. 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 And so on multiple levels, mm-hmm. that thing being taken away. Mm-hmm has to then, you know, rip a family apart legally, spiritually. Thank you. Exactly. Like how could And so that has huge systemic effects on generations where for a husband, husbands weren't allowed like slaves weren't allowed to be recognized as the heads of their household. The master was. Also slaves had to deal with in the book I like they use the term, they had to deal with the intrusion of the third flesh. Yeah. You can think about what that means on the explicit level, right? Right, right? In other words, the sexual intrusion of slave masters, they have rights to their female slaves. Right. This, and we're still talking, and I like what you're saying, Jordan, and we're talking about a Christian context. <laughs> that's the part, like, and that's why it's such an attachment and trauma. Like, it's a violation on so many levels. The R-I-G, the R-I, the R-I-G-H-T and the R-I-T-E levels, Right. right. So America and the American church, right? But anyway, so I'm just so so it's a personal journey, but just even learning that, like, so there's a reason why we see some of these struggles, particularly now. So slaves had to, in a sense, like, why even have this hope? Why even try at times, right? And I'm I'm putting myself in their emotional shoes. Because what we see, the resiliency though, of African Americans, they still pushed into marriage and, and sought to find love and bonding and connection. Because, you know, I guess I'll steal some words from Sue, right? You know, from Sue Johnson, like attachment is universal. We we are built and made to be in connection with people. So they still tried and worked it out. But so many times having their, their, their families ripped away from them, that's traumatic. And I think I'd be willing to say, like, that would make sense why some elements of that may still be hard even to today's time. Right. Yeah. So so part of it's personal, Jordan, in, in my own learning process. The second part is surrounding myself with other people who are on the journey. So, example, at New Heights, we kind of have like a race and diversity kind of committee that walks with me and we pray and we talk and we take this journey together. We have conversations. Uh, we share things that we're learning. We talk with each other in our personal journeys. Um, that's practically even with our, senior, our, our leadership here at New Heights, even as we sit and process sermon talks, what, how is that going to land? If you really want to be a multi-ethnic and multicultural community, 
it's going to be really hard forming things such as your 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 sermon teaching and your worship in a culturally monolithic group because there's going to be ways in which all of us have blind spots and you'll miss things so just even seeing our pastors now as we preach ex, you know expositorily through the scriptures watching them pull out the cultural elements and in a sense kind of undoing some of what's happened in american preaching and I don't. I know this is a loaded term, and I don't mean in a derogatory way, but like whitewashing how we preach sometimes, and like removing culture, right, from the, its context that we see within Scripture. Um, so, an example of that might be, uh, man, I'll just use when we were we were doing a sermon on community, and uh, and the pastor that was preaching that time was talking about Jesus's entourage, and so many times we could just move on, like yeah, the twelve disciples. But one of the things he pulled out was, and, and he said, one, it's bigger than the 12 disciples. And, oh, by the way, of probably the hundreds or even maybe thousands of people that walk with Jesus, they were a multicultural community made up of men and women. So here Jesus' entourage, the people that he's walking with, doing life with, and influencing the world with, were multicultural from the very beginning. So if it was multicultural then, but then we go to mod- that we see predominantly monolithic expressions of church here in America, what's going on, you know? Um, and I know there's so many reasons to that, but, and not all of them are good or natural. Some of them are because of Jim Crow issues that still live on today, right? And just even them brings it alive and affects the consciousness of the, of the community that listens to them. Or even hearing in one sermon, you know, uh, we were talking about, we were uh, in the Beatitudes, and I think it was like on the part about giving, and sometimes in American culture, we can have this, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you would just work hard enough, everything will be okay for you. And I love that he took the risk and he said something to the effect of, you know, have you ever sat down to try and do the budget with a single mother working full time on minimum wage? He says, once you've done that, you come back and talk to me again and tell me that she is getting assistance just because she's lazy. Like that just, I feel like pushes back against some of the, narrative that I tend to hear sometimes within conservative Christian circles. Uh, yeah, so that's just part of that, what that even looks like in that practical sense. But yeah, Jordan, and also to the third part of which, the third point, it is some of it practically I am trying to work towards. You've been an influence on me. How do we create experiences for people to hear a different narrative? And you've really helped me on, it's a narrative. Brian Stevenson talks about that. Yeah, you know, he's wonderful. The, the North may have won the war, but the South won the narrative. In other words, shaping how we tell stories is hugely influential. And I think that's where America really is stuck. We're stuck in our own story. We have this one story of exceptionalism and, and conquering and doing great things. And we are rescuers of people around the world. But we have, we, and it makes sense. It's hard to sometimes deal with all of the good and the bad within our own story. And so to help, I guess, psychologically ease our, our pain sometimes, we avoid the bad stuff or it's like just move past the bad stuff while we celebrate the good. So is it, how do we create experiences um, for people who honestly want to engage this differently to hear another story and to help where we can join into one common story uh, and move forward in a way that is healing and redemptive. Yeah, man, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. I feel like you're on a very, um, a very big journey with all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the one thing that comes up is probably the biggest barrier is people tend to bounce off of pain. Yes. Yeah. 
for good reason, right? Like in a in the natural world, if something is painful, you move away from it because that's gonna you know help you to survive. And if something's pleasurable, you move toward it because it helps you to survive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You you eat, you feel better. Yeah. Something snaps at you, you want to move away. Like that's just how it, how. I think in many ways how how our bodies are, are built. Yes. So how do you handle that when you're talking about this, right? Because I mean I can think about. So I'll, I think for me the conversation around race and racial racial reconciliation is very very hard. Yes. It's very very difficult, especially because I see um, a lot of poor or I have worked with a lot of poor white people, right? Mm-hmm. Who will say things that I think are um, racially insensitive yeah and then I hear their own story and I'm like holy crap like like uh, I might it's it is not uncommon for me to work with a to have worked with a woman who's a Trump supporter right mm-hmm. um, and then to then divulge that when she had her own um, sexual abuse mm-hmm. and told people who should have been there for her That's right. they were like oh just move on it didn't happen That's he right. didn't really mean that right exactly. so you then or this woman has this narrative of this is not something that we talk about not something that we that we deal with this is something that you have to just push through yeah and so when trump comes out with his own sort of um sexual indiscretions mm-hmm. right yeah. and really derogatory sexual language mm-hmm. you respond the same way that's right, exactly. Right, and so there's, to me, there's still so many different levels of this. That's right. How do you kind of handle that? Nope, that's good. I want to honor what you just said. You just kind of highlighted the dilemma that we all get stuck in, right? We have these joys and things that we want to move to. We have these good longings in our heart for peace and harmony and connection. But then we also have these places uh, where there's uh, we want to protect. And so... In that protection, like, it's so hard to move towards our, our longings because that protection keeps saying, no, don't do that. It's too much of a risk. It's too scary. So then we leave. Then we get stuck in places of living, like, in defensiveness, which still leave us alone and leave us hurting and leave us separated. And that's where we are. Like, you, you caught the big picture of where we are. And you can break this apart into so many things, whether it's race, whether it's uh, just what you talked about, how do we deal with abuse and trauma, Um I mean, so many things, whether it's immigration, like being able to tell. And, and I like what you're doing. Can I say this? I think that what you did is we have to be able to talk about the full picture. If I only land on one side, I don't do myself an honest favor, but nor do I do the story a favor. It's almost like I only want the resolution at the end of the story, and that's all I'm going to focus on. Well, the resolution isn't as beautiful. It's not as relieving if I can't deal with the tension, the drama that came in the early part of the story. And there's going to always be this part of me that's curious and wants to know and wants that full picture so I can have a better picture of the resolution at the end. So it's like I think that's what we're stuck in as a society. We want the end. We want the resolution without all of the pain, which is fair, the, the, the complexity and all of that. But the reason I guess I keep pushing into this with great hope and where I think you're right, racial tension is so hard because it brings up shame, it brings up feelings of guilt, it f- brings up anger, it brings up bitterness and resentment, and it's all so complicated. And some people may think I'm only doing this, Jordan, for minorities, but that's not true. I believe we're all trapped by this trauma, and we just all find ways of dealing with it. 
Some people protest and push so hard. Hear me, see me, feel me, be in this with me. Don't abandon me with this. You owe it to me or my people to be in this because I feel like you're a part of it. But then I feel like the other side, when they're sh- when it feels like they're shutting down, pushing away, it's the same thing. I don't like how this feels. This is this is it feels like it's too much for me, and I and they and they pushing away. But guess what? That's your own trauma coming up too. Your own struggle too. If you really want freedom, silencing the person that's been injured or the group that's been injured is not going to free you. It really leaves you in your own psychological bondage. And I so I want us as a society, particularly, and I do I do limit it to the church because you you brought on something. It becomes more deep and more sacred. In society at large, I feel like for me, outside of religion in some ways, I've heard this in this talk. Why do I have to buy into you? Like, because I'll tell, talk about the parallel of marriage. They'll be like, well, but I have no commitment to black people. I have no commitment to Latino people. I have no commitment to, to people of Arab descent. I have no, com- no personal emotional commitment to them. Okay, you have that right in a kind of like in a pluralistic way. That if there's no higher order, maybe we would hope that the good of all people would be something that would matter no matter what. But in the church, you do not have that option. If we say that they that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that if something hurts one part of the body, then you hurt with that part of the body, and that you address the needs of that part of the body. Why? Not just because they're complaining or or whatever. You do it out of reverence for Christ. And that is your obligation. So, yes, we are bound together in this journey. But I, but it's so hard for people to join in that for so many reasons. Uh, yeah. So when people, I mean, first of all, I love that, right? Because it's like, okay, this is bounded, right? That when you become a Christian mm-hmm. and you are wedded to this body, yep. right? Then you then have obligations to it. Yes. Um, so, of course, that's almost an ideal level at which to intervene, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. But when people come in and they say, "Mm, I don't want to deal with that, how do you handle that? When they push back and they say, "Mm," you know, it's like, like, um, I feel like I've seen this before, or I'll be honest about myself, right? I have neck issues, right? Mm. That like, there's a part of me that's like, I don't have time and energy, the problem's not that bad. When really in 20, 30 years, I could be hunched back and, you know what I mean? You caught it, right? I could be easily hunched back and crippled and then die of some sort of, you know, massive internal scoliosis. (laughs) I don't even know what that means, but it sounds like a a thing, right? Yeah. Um, But how do you help people to kind of move into that or move through that when they have those natural sort of pushes, push back against pain? Okay, so here's one of my guiding principles that really helps me in this. I use like kind of like those those principles of bonding from 1 Corinthians 13. Mm. And so that means two things for me. One, the first part of in 1 Corinthians 13, like in round of verse 4, is love is long-suffering and kind. Meaning that even to me to walk with somebody in close community and relationship, it is going to bring up pain in me. But while I feel my own pain, I also cannot lose sight of doing what's in your best interest. And then two, the other part of 1 Corinthians 13 that hits me in that one is love is not rude. So I'm not going to also put that person out to embarrass them. I'm not here to beat you up and, and, and humiliate you, which that happens on both sides of this conversation with race. It, I have to in some way destroy you so that way it makes my point feel more valid. See, I destroyed you. I humiliated your point. I shut you down. Well, no one wins doing that. But I guess I've got a third one. But that love does not rejoice in evil, but it, it rejoices. Love does not rejoice in, with, in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. In other words, 
if something is evil or wrong that is happening, I'm not just going to stand by if I say I love you. But also while I might deal with evil, I'm also a person that can also celebrate with you. So in that situation with that person says, I just don't want to do that. I don't, it's, too, it's in, an inconvenience to me. It's not really my thing. It's one, it's like being a therapist, to, like to stay curious. Hey, that's, that's kind of, I get that. Can you tell me what that is? Why it feels like you want to move away? While even though you said that you're committed to the advancing of God's kingdom and, and, and caring for his body in this particular issue here, it's, it's like kind of like a, neg- a negligible thing that you can walk away from, you can move away from. Can you tell me what this brings up in you just to even sit and to feel this? What does it bring up? And I guess I, call it, I like to call it like the Jesus move. One thing I think Jesus was good at is he makes people evaluate their own heart. Like I could come up with all the reasons and assumptions about why I think they're doing what they're doing, but I don't really know. And I could try and tell them why I think what they're doing, but I want them to find that answer deep down within their own heart. So that way it's not just me, but even when they walk away from me or the conversation, that they still have to internally process it and that they're not going to find the answers or peace within of themselves or going to find a group of people who only already think like them. They'll get some resolution from that, but the answer, will, but the question still will go unanswered. There's no conclusion to the story and that hopefully maybe they might later on at a different time, come back around and have the conversation in, in a different, more open way. Yeah. Hmm. I think the two things that stand out about that are the, your persistence, right? And your ability to be curious. You know, I think, um, I think that probably goes a very long way when working with people, mm-hmm. you know, so what are you working on now yeah (laughs) Uh, with the racial reconciliation part it's just really sitting down taking time I've been trying to spend time looking at the attachment injury repair model and I I really I I keep framing this in attachment so just going back to think about and doing more research in the attachment area and what happens what if okay so you said that earlier and something came up to me as you were saying that and it's, you know, the attachment injury model um, that's proposed by Sue Johnson, mm-hmm. her work is all with all with couples. That's correct. And it, it almost feels like that what we have in America is not an issue between couples, but an issue between siblings. Ooh, I like that. Right? You don't have people who have willingly engaged in this covenant relationship. I like that. And you have people who are bound by nature to work on this thing or destroy each other, right? I mean, you can see a couple of families, siblings, all the time where that's the truth. They can choose to live estranged, and it just eats them up. Mm-hmm. Eats up the whole family. Yeah. Right? And even if they're okay, there's a, oh, there's only a certain limit that they can really handle. Because mm-hmm. there's always Christmas, there's always Thanksgiving, there's always a funeral. You know, mom dies, and then the whole family again falls apart, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, so how does that hate you? I mean, it, it, I don't know. I love that. Um, I, I love thinking about that because that does take away that part where it's like you do pick your spouse, right? But however, even attachment injuries between siblings, even though you didn't choose each other, there is still some sense of we dwell with under the same roof. We're, ex- we're affected by the same kind of parental hierarchy. And there is some sense of where we do kind of kind of almost it's built into like there should be some kind of attachment and attunement between the two of us. So I love that language. But the beautiful part, and I I guess I take this, uh, is like the principles, whether it's marriage, 
sibling, or society. Because we are, you're right, in America, we all live in America. We're affected by the same kind of power hierarchies and structures, which is why when people get in racial reconciliation work and they want to talk about systemic issues, it's almost like I'm, we're talking about, and I hate to use it this way because there's several different kind of power hierarchies, right? But we are. We're talking about this almost parental-like power hierarchy. And is this parental power hierarchy, is it creating coalitions, favoritism? Is it favoring one part of the system over the other? Um, and is it picking favorites? Are there scapegoats in this family that kind of have to carry the sins of the family away and just handle them in shame? You know, um, yeah. Or is there a part of the the uh, of the family that maybe has to bear this burden of making everything feel good in the family? Like you know, you know, be the good performer, right? Instead of being the black sheep, you know, right? You know, you're the good one, and you carry that burden even on yourself. So, yeah, I like yeah. that framework. Hmm. So yeah, back to what what are you working on now? You're so you're oh. doing the attachment injury sort of model and trying mm -hmm. to understand that better for yeah when you do groups or when you do yeah. and what I yeah I like that but then I I do like to spend time sometimes with community groups or other people who say you know where we want to do better with this but we just don't know how and I'll go have those conversations with them some of like what we're doing now their fears their concerns come up. Because I guess part so of... you're doing some consulting. Yes. Well. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I should start charging that way, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jordan. James Hawkins, cons consultant, rec racial reconciliation. Yeah. That's a nice ring to it. Yeah, I like Dr. that. Dr. Hawkins, there you go. There we go, man. <laughs> but Because I think part of it is this battle is not just one from people on podcasts or on, on, on TV shows. It's people who have real-life conversations and begin to have these conversations differently one-on-one. -on -one in their communities, around their family tables, in their churches, in their community groups, who are able to get a fuller perspective of the whole story and the whole narrative and share a, their new uh, their new insight with their community. That's one. Um, so that's a little bit of what I'm working on. And then also it's like uh, I'd love to, like, you know, some of what we're trying to work on, um, I would say, within the Joshua Center and is uh, how do we help train other people to be relationship reconcilers uh, and putting together workshops and experience for those groups of people too as well Yeah, to navigate. Because the difficult part of being someone that stands in this gap, Jordan, this is what I've appreciated about our friendship, is it takes a whole lot of bravery and courage to be able to stand in the tension. That's hard because you're going to take it from both sides, right? Yeah. Uh, you're going to get the one side that says, I mean, Martin stood in this, right? Too much, too soon, not, not now. What? You know, but then Martin also dealt with the tension of people like not you're not doing enough. You're not being strong enough. You're not pushing enough. Yeah. But Martin really believed in the space of being able to stand within that tension. Um, and that's hard. And that takes some emotional maturity and some security in and of yourself to be able to do that. Yeah, it really does. It's really. Um, it's something that I feel called to do as well. Right. I'm not sure how that plays out for me in the future, but it is very, very hard. I think it's because it's so uncomfortable. It is. Yeah. It is. Because sometimes you can feel like you have no real home to lay your head. But then even if you try, and I'll say I'll, this is for me, even if I try and sell out in one way or another, it just doesn't, I don't feel congruent. Um, and I'm, people say, what do you mean? So it's not even about like just color, right? It's about just really how you approach this conversation. Um, 
and I just want to be as congruent and honest with myself where I don't hide myself and give up because of discouragement or misunderstanding, nor do I go into this place of because I've been hurt or misunderstood, I turn into a bully and start trying to beat people up. Because really what it is, because I mean, but I want to honor that, though. There are people out here showing pain because one thing I guess we learned in some of our EFT training is pain demands a response. And pain will protest to be seen and to be heard. But then sometimes pain will try and bottle itself up and shut itself down to hopefully try and mitigate, you know. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Um, how far do you think we can actually go with this, right? Because I think there's also a level at which... And this is probably not this is not a popular popular thing to say, but there's also a level at which society's only going to improve so much. Correct. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I remember I was in I oh, I wish I could remember exactly where I was. I did the it was the fiftieth anniversary I think of Selma, and we were walking over the bridge, you know, commemorating the walk. And as we're talking and as we're walking. Um, there are billboards on trucks. So I guess they're, I don't know, truck advertisements talking mm-hmm. about how uh, we have to do X, Y, and Z because African-Americans are being denied the right to vote. And so it's basically the same thing as it was in the 60s, in the, in the late 50s, right? Mm-hmm. To which I feel like the obvious answer is that's not true. Mm. This is not the same as it was then. Things have gotten a lot better, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Not that there aren't still problems. That's right. Right. But let's also acknowledge um, how far that we have come. Yes. Right. Yeah. But it seems, and as I've read history, it seems like people tend to feel like this new problem is the same as the worst that it's ever been. Yeah, I agree. So when that's sort of the mindset that a lot of people have, right? I mean, that's also, and I think that's seen on, on both sides, right? You have people in the black community who say, Yes, we're being restricted in voting just like we were in the 50s, right? And then you have Trump supporters on the other side who are saying things like, look, um, America is, you know, the worst it's ever been. We need to go back to how it was when it was great. People mm-hmm. are both on, people on both sides are saying mm-hmm. things are worse mm-hmm. when things are actually better. Yep. So what's the actual limit when people continue to, continue to have that sort of mindset? Yeah. Because it feels like it's, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And so this is where I'll invite you. You can shoot this down or help provide clarity for me. Um, If I'm still working from an attachment kind of idea, right, it's almost like a person, like a couple, we can, I'll still stay with the couple one, right, could have had a major trauma where there was uh, a profound sense of abandonment or betrayal. And maybe they've made amends in a way where the person stopped doing the thing that they did. Exactly, right? That that thing. But then they move on maybe a couple of years later. Or maybe in little ways in their life. Maybe that person that felt abandoned, betrayed. When they then go to talk to their partner about uh, a work-related crisis. And then that other partner freezes and locks up and doesn't respond. It brings that abandonment trauma back up. And what that signals to me, and why I think, which I love what you're talking about, Jordan, is because <laughs> we have not done a great job. And I'm stealing this from Soon Chang Ra's a, a little bit, right? He says, we do, we do not know how to do prophetic lament. Mm. In other words, what he's saying is we apologize and we move on, but we do not grieve together well. 
And because we have not grieved it in the same kind of emotional uh, proximity and attunement, that emotional alarm there is still there resonating, even though the surface level events are changing. And I agree and I honor that, which I love what you said. You know, there are some tangible proofs of things being different. You know, we don't go see clearly written anywhere, white signs, colored signs, uh, Jim Crow laws. Well, in some ways, they're still kind of on the books, but they're not as explicitly enforced as maybe they were before. However, we have not, I, I believe, we have not sat in the emotional pro- in pro- process and lamented. And typically when I'm doing this work, everybody's like, I'm tired of lamenting. I don't want to lament. I just want to move on. I want to do something. Okay, you can go do something. But if you don't get into that sense of that same place of pain and sit in that pain together to a place where it's not just like I said my apology, but to where it becomes a felt sense in both people, then it's going to always keep kind of popping back up. There's that one part. But then I do think, too, Jordan, to that, I wonder sometimes about the gap between the generation that marched originally across Selma and this generation because we also don't do history well, which messes with our story. So, therefore, I think that leaves us in the trauma. (laughs) I was literally, so last weekend, uh, the um, Dr. David White, I think his name is, Mm -hmm. had a a history speech. He's an African-American, does uh, history, Mm -hmm. and he's at the U of A. He had a history speech Mm -hmm. that I went to. The, the, you know, I don't know, the local historical society had him come in. Mm -hmm. He was talking about the role of black entrepreneurship and, um, like the in like the Jim Crow era, right? Mm-hmm. And we go there, and it's me, my mom, my sister, um, and the rest is just white people. Mm-hmm. And my mom is, and I'm, and I turned to my mom, and she's like, "You, you're surprised?" And I was like, "About what?" She's like, "That there's no one else here of like color." And I was like, "That's not what I was thinking." Mm-hmm. But then we have this conversation about how she's like, "Yeah, you know, often I go to events, and people who look who look like me don't show up." Mm. And so that's just like a very real example of what you're talking about, of not doing history. Literally, this is a history talk about how black people, especially black women, mm-hmm. when it comes to maid services, that's and black right. uh, men who do like uh, 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 barbershops, really took ownership in, their, in, in, in small ways by becoming entrepreneurs, right? That's Which right. is like so needed. That's right. That, 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 to know that that's a part of my history is so needed, mm-hmm. right? But like no one knows that, and you can't know that because no one's there to learn. Like, like, like it's just the people who need who need that image aren't having shown up for whatever reason. Can I? I want to step into that with you. Yeah. And so this has been the hard thing for my family and I. I have five girls, right? Oh, I'm aware. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> too many girls. But I want it. But the part I love what you're saying. Our public system will not do this which it should, I believe. You know, um, I love hearing Brian Stevenson talk about how in Germany they deal publicly with the Holocaust. They don't just make the Jews in Germany go and deal with the Holocaust by themselves. That systemically and societally, they have monuments to remind them of the Holocaust around Germany, but they also learn about the Holocaust in their public school, right? Um and in America, we try and rewrite curriculums and change things and soften it because it's br- – but it leaves – if you cannot deal with the story yeah. and you leave our minority kids to learn it on their own, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm – maybe be transparent. It pissed me off, right? Like, I've got to learn about this. You couldn't help me walk. Like, 
and to get in as you keep pulling the layers back like really really this 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 and then i'm having to do it on my own i don't know it's, it's almost like i have to bring up like black panther right then that that's where you get killmongers from right like i've got to go deal with my own pain by myself oh, okay you're gonna feel me later right, right. And so that's I, you're, it goes back to where you talked to me, you know, when you first got here, man, we've got to deal with this, the whole narrative, the good, the bad and the ugly together. If we're going to really be able to do this differently. Yeah, man, I think that the work that you're doing is so important. I think it's super, super, super important. Um, and I think it's super important because I don't think that we're teaching this right. Like, like. And I want to go back to something you said five minutes ago because it's just so poignant because it's because you're you're talking about how if a couple suffers an attachment injury right mm -hmm. and there's a profound sense of abandonment mm -hmm. and then later on there's um an echo of that mm -hmm. i like that an echo of it right how they're able to have that conversation probably dictates the next conversation that's right, right. so go, i'm gonna make sure they catch that so how i dealt with the first injury or lack of dealt the first injury has reciprocating effects for how when the next echo comes up right. how i deal with that next one right. that's exactly where we are in america exactly yeah. and to me that's also sort of the generative nature right the self-sustaining nature of families when, when they're done well exactly right because it's like okay um let's say i, I don't know i do something that massively offends you right mm -hmm. I, I don't know run over your foot in the car and I don't even <laughs> I don't even worry about it right yeah and then we come back and we repair and then we're you know at a conference and I let the door shut in your face mm. right yep it's gonna be if better. in that moment you can come to me and say hey man that really impacted me like mm -hmm. I felt like you didn't care again yeah. and I'm like man I'm so sorry I didn't mean that at all mm -hmm. I'll try to be more careful next time mm-hmm that's a completely different response yeah. than, look, it was just a door. Why is this a thing again? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And that second response probably dictates the health of our relationship, right? Like not necessarily the symptom. Yeah. And the symptom right. might be you having the same feeling. Yep. That symptom might not actually dictate the health of our relationship. Yeah. But how we're able to dialogue around it and be there for each other in those moments is probably the greater the greater marker of the of how healthy our relationship is. How do how do we respond to each other? And I'm gonna use a word that probably isn't popular in America. How do we respond and how do we comfort each other? That's it. If if there can't be responsiveness to someone's pain, then you're right. That's gonna dictate it, not the symptom. It's the level. It's the responsiveness. And can we provide comfort to each other? If we can't do those two things, we can't respond or provide comfort. That's going to dictate the health of our relationship. And that's exactly where we see each other in the racial conversation. So when people say, well, when is it enough, James? What are you going after? What's the goal? I'm going after responsiveness and comfort. When, other, when, this, when the echoes of this come up and we can respond in a way of I see your pain and take it in and seek to move and make comfort, even if I'm not talking about like, yeah, legislative stuff can be on the table, but that's not necessarily the, the main part, particularly because I'm talking about the church, right? In the church, the body of Christ, where it says comfort others with the comfort that you have been comforted with, that we are body parts joined together, that if the one part hurts, the other part should also hurt. If I cannot respond and provide comfort to the other part, then we will always be stuck in this from here into eternity. Right. And I do like the question that you a little bit about, you know, optimism or pessimism in the sense of, you know, isn't this always going to be a thing? 
I think that's a different answer between the church and society. The church has a higher moral calling to this, a kingdom calling to this, right? I like Dr. Tony Evans when he says, God is not going to skip over the church house to go to the White House. And we are looking to other power structures and entities to fix something that is not theirs. This is an in-house issue that we've got to deal with. And even when we think about society-wise and some of the works, like I'm reading um, Jamar Tisby's Color of Compromise, and part of the thing that Jamar is calling out in that book is the church signed the theological kind of treaties to okay the injustices in society. Society turned to the church of, because we're still trying to be a Christian nation, and they got the license from pastors to do these things. So we have some in-house issues that we've got to get right to then be able to go. If we can't deal with the stuff in-house, we have no voice in society. And then I think the church is wondering why so many times, why are we losing our influence in society? And I'm a, I am I, I quoting all these scriptures on your podcast, man, but it's like Jesus said that the world will know that you are mine by the love that you have for one another. In other words, your ability to connect to one another will manifest your relationship with me and manifest my relationship on earth. If we have a breakdown in our relationship as the body of Christ, it makes sense that they do not see Jesus. So if we want to do evangelism better, we can tell them the gospel cognitively, but it will not make a relational difference because we do, we need to be the leaders and models of relationship within the church. Wow. Well, man, that's, that's, that's beautiful. Like that vision is like so beautiful. That's awesome. Wow, I love that. Mm. So we're winding up on our on our time here. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you're a busy man. You got places to go, people to heal, all that stuff. <laughs> Racial reconciliation to to manifest. So um, when you look at the field mm-hmm. of therapy or reconciliation, or you know, just in general, what do you feel like is on the on the forefront? Mm. Wow. I mean, I hate to say, yeah, you know the context I'm in, Jordan, because you sit in it with me right now. Um, I think the new thing that is really on the horizon in our field right now is a lot of this neurological and attachment research. And I love it. And because what we're seeing is this is not just a theoretical thing. It is also a a physiological thing. Like these things that we believe as therapists, kind of in our therapy models, have direct, natural, real, relevant manifestations and consequences, which makes me kind of as a practitioner, like take what I do so much more seriously. Like I am making, I'm, I'm implementing interventions that have long lasting effects on my clients beyond just their cognitive memory. Like literally every therapist, every client that sits in my office, that something is happening to them at a neuro, neurological, physiological level that they get to carry out of that room. And I love it. And I think uh, particularly the peer group that we're a part of here in Northwest Arkansas, right? I just love it uh, that they're joining in and therapists, I think, need to have more of a voice in the public place of sharing their view about relationships and healing and reconciliation because uh, some of the people that have the microphones right now are not doing a really good job with it. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Let's not even get into that. At least not today. Oh my gosh. Uh, what are you reading? What should people be reading if you were going to recommend one book? Whoa. 
man, okay, so this is the book I am so eager to get back into. I started it. Uh, right now, of course, you, I'm doing The Bound and Wetlock, and I'm reading Jamar Tesby's book. But I am so eager to get back into Disunity in Christ. Oh, Christian in Cleveland is yes. a beast. I want to get back into that book so badly. Yeah. So good. She's savage. Yeah. She's like savage, savage. Yes. Okay. I love it. I love it. I think that's a great, um, I'm up to pick up that one, The Color of Compromise, later. Okay. Um, what should people know about? What are you doing next? What do you, you know, do you have any events or trainings or anything you want people to know about? You, I know you also have your own podcast. Yeah. Um, what do you, my wife and I have a podcast primarily kind of talking about uh, specific topics and things that land on like the Christian family community. Um, because we feel like there are specific things where that research even shows us that if we can address some of the struggles that they're having through their faith perspective, that it, it, it takes a deeper route for them. So we do have the A More Excellent Way podcast on iTunes, Google Play. Um, all, and if you can't find it there, we, you can also find it on klrc.com on the KLRC podcast network. Uh, so uh, that's one of the things we're doing. But just kind of. Uh, stay attuned, um, and I don't know how you really do it, <laughs> but like we do hope to eventually soon um, do something more publicly and in the community for people who want to do better, even in this conversation we're having today, uh, to have a training for, I don't know, like right now in my mind, it's like, you know, equipping the reconciler mm-hmm. and helping people who want to stand in the tension and do a better job of it. So, yeah. Beautiful, man. Well, look, last words. No, man, I just thank you. I think for people like you who uh, take so many different elements of what's going on in the people profession and help bring that out for us to understand it in a uh, deeper, more meaningful way. I just really, uh, we need more thinking and thought leaders in our world. And I just thank you for you and your podcast being a part of that, man. Thank you. Thank you, James. All right, man. Yeah.